This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about comic books. We can blame them for glorifying violence and brutality, and then we can celebrate their disruptive potential. For that, we turn to Jay Hoberman, the longtime film critic for The Village Voice. He's written many books. I think my favorite is An Army of Phantoms, American Movies and the Making of the Cold War. His most recent book is about the Marx Brothers Duck Soup in the BFI Classics series. He's written for Art Forum, the LRB, the New York Times, the New York Review, and The Nation. Last time he was here, we talked about the Aaron Sorkin film Trial of the Chicago 7. We asked, is it a great courtroom drama or boomer porn? Jim Hoberman, welcome back. Great to be with you. Well, I know that comic books and especially superheroes ended up today dominating Hollywood, making billions of dollars for the studios. But origins are always interesting. You say early comics were, were sort of like B-movies. Explain. Well, they, had, they were, you know, adventure-oriented. They were like B-movies or, or serials, westerns, overseas adventures. They, they basically followed a Hollywood uh, formula, but, you know, aimed basically at, at kids or boys, to be more specific. But, you know, they were, they were uh, certainly not uh, conceived of as, uh, as, as adult entertainment. And then came World War II, something I didn't know about that you write about in the nation, the Writer's War Board. What was the Writer's War Board? Well, you know, there was near total mobilization during during World War II. And uh, Rex Stout, one of the leading mystery writers, kind of put this together where they figured that that comics are a, um, a useful medium. And... Part of what they discovered comic books could convey in support of the war effort is what you call explosive violence and gross caricatures. The best example is that initially there was a certain amount of uh, divergence between Germans and Nazis. Uh, but, you know, as the war went on, as American casualties mounted, there was no difference. I mean, all Germans were Nazis. There were no good Germans. With Japanese, this was never even you know, a question. And then after the war, comic books changed. I didn't know about that you write about that got to be very big called Crime Does Not Pay. Tell us about Crime Does Not Pay. Crime Does Not Pay was the, uh, the brainchild of a really fascinating character, Lev Gleason, who was a leftist, probably a communist. It's crime does not pay, but it is also identifying you know, crime with capitalism. It, it was very lurid, but it also was, was quite adversarial in, uh, in a way, and it was extremely popular. After the war, I mean, it wasn't kid stuff. It wasn't guys running around in, in tights. What struck me reading about this in the, in the book Pulp Empire by Paul S. Hirsch was how... Um, Similar, this was in a way to uh, the tendency in Hollywood that we call film noir. It was a uh, downbeat, disillusioned, kind of cynical tendency in American movies, which had, up until that point had been famous for their optimism. I mean, people came out of the war. I mean, particularly the guys who, you know, were, were having to fight it, angry, cynical, disillusioned. And these comics uh, uh, spoke to that. 
And also, you know, the um, the other adult comics were were romance comics, which were aimed at at women, and and which were not hallmark Valentines. I mean, they they and they were definitely not intended for kids. Then I want to talk about Disney comics. I always thought of Disney comics after the war as harmless fun. But the book you wrote about for the nation, Pulp Empire by Paul Hirsch, includes a Donald Duck comic strip from 1947 titled Donald Duck's Atom Bomb, which was sort of shocking. This was not a comic book per se. It was a promotional device that was included in boxes of Cheerios cereal. Donald Duck's Atom Bomb, Donald, for reasons of his own, decides he's going to build a, uh, an atom bomb in his uh, a nuclear device in his backyard. And it's really crazy. You know, he throws in, you know, like uh, stray cats and lightning bolts and this, that, and the other thing. It accidentally goes off in Duckburg. And uh, the denizens of Duckburg lose their hair. Not that they even had so much to begin with. If you think about what... <laughs> So it's like, but anyway, they lose their, you know, so it's topical. It's, it's, it's alluding to, you know, the, or making light of the, the fear of, uh, of radiation, which, you know, people were aware of. Uh, and then uh, at the end, you know, Donald saves the day or at least saves his own, you know, reputation or whatever by coming up by, by, by merchandising his new hair restorer. Paul Hirsch writes, it is a remarkably morbid and cynical ending, even for a character as obnoxious, vengeful, and short-tempered as Donald Duck. (laughs) Faced with a city poisoned by radiation, Donald Duck offers false hope to the survivors and then robs them. Yes. Well, one of the things that I really like about, about Hirsch's book is that, you know, he's really can get quite indignant and it's almost like a kind of a comic book history itself and i don't mean that in a negative sense i mean you know there's a hyperbolic uh, tone to it which i think you know suits the material and i i i enjoyed that so there you have that you have a great example <laughs> i should say that the, that the disney comics at least the, the the uncle scrooge comics although they were, had let's let's say a kind of imperialist bias, which was later brilliantly explicated by Dorfman and Madelhart in How to Read Donald Duck years later, were, were really, you know, from a kid's point of view, from my point of view as a kid, were really good comics. I loved the way they were drawn and they were very funny in the characters. But these were, were only came into their own in the 50s, actually in the mid-50s, after the, uh, the, the adult comics, which is to say, you know, the horror comics, the crime comics, driven from the newsstands and the candy stores. Well, here's what confuses me. The next chapter is a more familiar one. The panic about comic books, the violence uh, uh, causing juvenile delinquency. But what confuses me is that both the left and the right were against comic books in the mid-50s. You quote the Daily Worker denouncing comic books as, quote, a billion-dollar industry glorifying brutality, close quote. But that was, of course, also the view of J. Edgar Hoover and of the Church of England. What's going on here? The world united. Certainly, there were objectionable things in in, in comics. I mean, and Frederick Wortham, you know, the uh, psychiatrist who... uh, 
was most famous for writing a book, you know, The Seduction of the Innocents, was, was a leftist, was a progressive guy. And the thing that he was most disturbed by was the racism in, in comics, particularly the, the comics that were set, you know, in the jungle. That was not particularly what upset Hoover. Or even, I think, the, the Church of England, they were upset because the comics were capable, first of all, of, of being incredibly exaggerated in their violence. And, and also, we're, we're dealing, you know, like uh, with suggestive uh, uh, women, like the family, you know, the, 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 the guys who made the comic books really just like let their fantasies run wild, you know, in their, in their, in their portrayal of, of, uh, of, of young women. So I think the, the thing was that unlike Hollywood, comic books had no kind of internal censor. And there's something, I think, much more primal about drawing. I mean, it's much more, it's connected much more directly to, to the unconscious, to the, you know, to, to people's fantasies. And that was really what was disturbing. I should say parenthetically that uh, uh, I had a, a conversation recently with, uh, with Art Spiegelman about, he made a connection between, you know, the kind of moral panic that, that Mao set up at the, in this school board in, in, uh, in Western Tennessee with the general, you know, like uh, how easy it is for people to get upset about comics. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, like even though th- these comics weren't made for kids, kids could understand them. They're pictures. Kids know how to look at pictures. Yeah. There's, a, there's a way in which comics also, you know, like are, are sub-literary. And this sometimes suited the government with these educational comic books, you know, the propaganda comic books, they like the fact that they're, that they're, they, they could be seen as easy to read, but, but, you know, the fact that kids could also see them made it worse. The, the most famous one, I think, is the EC comic of a baseball game that's being played with dismembered corpses and so on. And in a way, it's kind of hilarious that they did this, that they turned, you know, the national pastime into this really ghoulish, you know, grand guignol thing. And you know, it's not, I mean, it's, it's a comic, you know, it's not, it's not a photograph, but that made people crazy because that was, you know, like kids would, would, would see this, you know? So after the moral panic, after the congressional investigations, the mid-50s, the comic book publishers agreed to self-censorship. And this is the period when we get the return of the superheroes, especially Marvel Comics' Spider-Man and the Hulk. But these characters were different from the Superman of World War II who, you know, punched Hitler in the nose. What you got as a result of the... um congressional hearings and so on was the end of the adult comics. And suddenly that's when you got the Disney comics and, you know, Dell comics, little Lulu on the one hand, then you also got mad magazine on the other, where there was, you know, the, uh, a number of the artists who had been involved in the EC horror comics went into overt and, and brilliant and, and very influential social satire. You also had this sort of the, the, the canonization of Superman and Batman, you know, who were, who were very sort of chaste superheroes, you might say. And uh, when Marvel introduced their new characters around 1960, 61, the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and so on, they went for slightly unhinged or recognizably human personalities. 
and also a degree of ambivalence. I mean, the, one of the great things was that they weren't necessarily happy. You know, Spider-Man was was a, a, a disgruntled adolescent. So there was that. And then there was the fact that um, Marvel was employing uh, Jack Kirby, who was probably the, the, the greatest comic book artist of uh, post-war period, or certainly of the post-congressional hearings period, just, you know, very, very talented. And, and so with a combination of things, reeled in a lot of new readers, uh, which I would include my teenage self. My, my favorite character was Doctor Strange, <laughs> not Spider-Man. So. Okay. The 60s then turned into the 70s. We got R. Crumb. We got Art Spiegelman. Both of them love old comics, really old comics. And now we've got the Black Panther. We've got Wonder Woman. These changes seem to suggest comic books now are in the, the vanguard of cultural change. Is that the way you see it? Well, I, I see it that, that what it is is that comics are really our cultural DNA, that a lot of stuff can, can come out of them. And that with the um, what's referred to as the, as the digital term in, in movie production, you know, that put the emphasis on, uh, on special effects, digital effects, also the need to make big budget movies universally apprehendable, not just in the United States. I mean, there was a whole dynamic, many reasons why Hollywood would have gotten into superheroes all of a sudden. And of course, drawing on, on the Marvel superheroes, but also Superman and, and, and Batman as well. And that because this became something close to uh, our official culture, you know, in the, in the official mass culture in the, in the 21st century, there was also a tendency, a kind of a backlash. Well, really, you know, they should pay attention, you know, to uh, um, to other, you know, excluded groups and, you know, uh, women hold up half the sky. I mean, maybe it would be good to have, you know, like a incredible female superhero. And But I think that this is kind of like, you could consider this almost like the lost leader, although both of these movies, of course, made, made, made money, that, that that's not what the appeal, the basic appeal of superhero movies are now. I think that in a way, these comic book movies are compensatory on a, on a cultural scale or on a national scale. I mean, all entertainment is in some respects compensatory, you know, movies particularly, in that it gives you something that you don't have usually in your daily life. It, it makes up for something. That's one of, that's part of the appeal. It's not the only appeal, but it's certainly there. But I, I really think that, that the superheroes came into their own as movie fodder uh, at, a, at a time when uh, uh, America was uh, realizing, you know, there was that, that brief golden moment where uh, uh, America considered itself the world's lone superpower. Right. Now, you know, um, that didn't save, you know, like the, the World Trade Center from from being taken out. It didn't present, you know, prevent 15 years of, of unwinnable wars that had, you know, nothing to do with even America's perceived national interest and so on. But we could make these movies, you know, about the uh, incredible uh, super beings who flawed. They're not. They're not perfect. They're, they they have flaws. They're 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 human, and and everybody would watch them, and 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 we would love them. I mean, this is a kind of uh, simplistic view of it, but I think in a, in a in a general sense, I mean, 
there is, there is a reason for this trend. There are reasons for this trend. And the comics were there to like it was it was ready made. It was ready made for this kind of uh, spectacular uh, filmmaking. Jay Hoberman wrote for The Nation about the history of comic books. It's told in the new book, Pulp Empire, The Secret History of Comic Book Imperialism by Paul S. Hirsch. You can read Jim's review at thenation.com. Jim, thanks for talking with us today. This was great. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.